Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Om Dungal arrived in Australia as a student in 1998, before being granted a refugee visa in light of the Bhutanese government's persecution of the ethnic Nepalese of southern Bhutan. As inaugural president of the Association of Bhutanese in Australia, Om played a critical role in the settlement of 5,000 Bhutanese refugees in Australia. Today, Om sits on the New South Wales Ministry of Health Advisory Committee, the New South Wales Police Multicultural Advisory Council, and the Blacktown Multicultural Advisory Committee. Today, I'm joined by Om Dungal to talk about his new book, Bhutan to Blacktown, Losing Everything and Finding Australia. Om, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you, Greg, and thank you so much for having me. You've got a very interesting background. You're a Bhutanese national with a Nepali heritage and a Hindu religion. How did you come to be living in Bhutan in the first place? It was my actually grandparents' uh, generation onwards from both sides of the family. They moved from Nepal and from my father's side to sort of India and then came along. So that time it was a continuous sort of you know area. So people moved across. Uh, it didn't have technical borders, so they moved across that area. And they happened to come to Bhutan and start their life in Bhutan. So we have been living there for generations in Bhutan. Most people know Bhutan as this Buddhist kingdom and a self-styled land of gross national happiness. It's It sounds like some kind of paradise, I, I suppose, yes. to lots of people who haven't been there. But yes. something changed for you and for that nation. What happened? Uh, I think it is still a very good country as such. Like, you know, it's a beautiful country. And like, you know, I was born and brought up there. Haven't, you know, until I, were, I became a refugee, I hadn't seen any other almost any other place apart from, you know, going to study in Bangladesh. Uh, it, it is indeed a beautiful country. But uh, during the late 80s and early 90s, government carried out an ethnic cleansing policy and evicted one-seventh of the country's population, which happened to be ethnic Nepali population, which predominantly lived in the southern part of the country. And what was the basis for that ethnic cleansing we can just guess, but perhaps what happened with the collapse of Berlin Wall to what is happening in Nepal and what is happening in Darjeeling, Gorkhaland, Bhopal, you know, there were a lot of democratic movements you know, going on around the world. And I think that was a time where people around the king, you know, like the, perhaps not the king himself, or you know, people around the king got a little jittery and said, what happens tomorrow if there is democracy in our country? What happens to our you know, perks and privileges? Uh, what do we do about it? So I think that divide and rule policy sort of was conceived by the government. And they decided to you know, uh, categorize people in the South into different categories, you know, seven different categories of citizenship, create a lot of uncertainty, started implementing discriminatory policies, such as in primary schools in southern part of Bhutan, they used to teach Nepali language. That was stopped. Uh, that didn't stop there. They actually burned, you know, textbooks outside the school just to, you know, create that sentiment against what they were doing. Secondly, you know, there was a dress code where people in the South were, or throughout the country, they were required to wear a 
national dress at all times. So if I needed to grab some salt outside, go to a, in a corner shop and grab some salt, I had to start wearing a national dress before I ventured out. So that became quite onerous in the South, particularly in the hotter part of the country where my wife and you know other families come from, where it's fairly hot and the dress is not really suitable to the hotter climate. So that we're gonna. But the most important thing was that census, you know, like with they carried out census and created that seven categories of citizens. So if, say, for example, you could not produce a tax receipt that you paid back in 1958, if you had something for 48, that would work. If you had something for 57, it would work. It had to be particularly 1958. If you haven't preserved that, you are not a witness citizen. So there were a number of discriminatory policies against Southern Bhutanese and uncertainties were created. And when people protested against those policies, government said, how dare you do that? And started, you know, arresting people, torturing them and forcing them to leave the country. So in that process, my elderly father was put in prison, you know, twice tortured very badly. And, you know, he was forced to leave the country when the soldiers came looking for him the third time around. So that's how they started this you know, discriminatory policies and then that led into outright you know uh, ethnic cleansing it's very interesting because you had a very important government position in fact at the age of 29 a, a very young bureaucrat you became the head of yeah. the planning division of Bhutan's telecommunications telecommunications yes <laughs> <laughs> sorry during the like uh, you know early 80s i think it was sort of that golden period where, you know, government, we were so focused on developing the country. Nobody cared where you came from, South, North, Hindu, Buddhist. And for me, I was a Bhutanese. I identified myself first as a Bhutanese and then everything else added to the richness of being a Bhutanese. As a bureaucrat, I was so focused on developing the telecommunications in the country. And uh, people are rewarded for this commitment and, you know, like performance rather than your background. So until then, I think the government operated very fairly. And uh, it was only towards the late part of 1980s that discriminatory policies started. So like me, there were other senior people as well. Like, so for example, the head of power department was a Southern Bhutanese, the head of you know public works department was from Southern Bhutan. So there were a number of senior Southern Bhutanese senior you know, officials around that time. So until then, it was really good. But once this policy started being implemented, then government put a ban on, you know, further promotions of Southern Bhutanese, of Southern Bhutanese traveling overseas, et cetera, et cetera. Tell me about that moment when you realized you had to leave your life in Bhutan. A lot of people ask me, how could you make this choice on? Because I was kept under surveillance almost for a year. Like, so, you know, I was told not to leave the capital city without permission from the civil service commission. So even for my official duty, if I had to travel to other places outside of Timbu, then I had to take permission from the civil service commission. Towards the second week of April 1992, I had some inside information that I was going to be arrested any day. And when that happened, you know, like I spoke to my wife and said, what will happen now? Because like we had seen People who were arrested, they were tortured and, you know, like some would come out of prison, some wouldn't come out. They had no visitation rights, etc. So if I were to be arrested, there was no guarantee that I would be alive. So given that scenario, like, you know, my wife and I sort of, you know, covered ourselves with a blanket at night and 
sort of discuss, you know, what do we do next? Because we were so scared. Our phones were tapped. They were, you know, people would follow me. So it was a scary, very, very scary situation. And two of us sort of, you know, under our blanket, we decided that maybe I should leave first because she also worked in the government. And uh, if she, if we both left together, then, you know, government would, you know, be suspicious and might arrest us. So I thought I'll make an excuse of visiting that, you know, a bordering town of Funzling on a work trip. And then from there, I, I would, you know, leave the country. So that's how we sort of decided. And it was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever made in my life because I had to kiss my two-year-old daughter goodbye and leave her, never knowing I would ever see her again, or for that matter, my wife, who I had married just, you know, three, four years ago. So uh, it, it was one of the most difficult times, but we just have to had to survive on total faith and believing that one day we'll be together. Let's take this one thing at a time. And I just fled the country, you know, leaving them behind and waited in, you know, for four days, but they were like four years wait, you know, for me to be united in India again. And then it wasn't safe for us to live in India. So I had, we then, you know, quickly, you know, entered Nepal and started a new life all over again. When you're in India and then in Nepal, did you think of yourself uh, as a refugee? Actually, we were so naive, Rick. Uh, I was thinking, when would we go back to Bhutan? I never thought that, you know, there's another place I would live in my life. Even in that situation, for the next four years, never ever thought of living anywhere. You know, I was travel to different countries to lobby, you know, for, you know, to put forward our case, to lobby for support for the refugees. And always came back to Nepal in a, in that with that travel document, never thinking that I'll ever live anywhere else. It was only towards that four years, sort of five years starting, then started realizing as you study different situations like the Palestinian situation or the Sri Lankan problem and different parts of the world. And I found this could be a protected problem. And, you know, what do I do? What's my response to my daughter? What's my response to my wife? And what's my response to my elderly parents? So that's when I started thinking, maybe I need to do something here now. And even then I was thinking, okay, I'll do my little crazy. I want to do my <laughs> master's MBA, you know, <laughs> as a refugee. And some of my friends laughed at it. Yeah, but somehow we made it happen. And I came here. Even when I came here, the first thing was to, you know, do my MBA. Uh, but soon I realized that, you know, I wouldn't be able to go back to Bhutan nor to Nepal for that matter on a travel document, you know, so that's when actually I decided, okay, maybe I need to, you know, seek asylum and get, you know, protection from this country. As a boy and a young man growing up and an adult with a family, what did you know about Australia? First thing I knew about Australia was a long time ago when I was in primary school. There was an auction by the local administration. There was a calf and it was brought from Australia, they said. It's a Jersey cow. Uh, it, it hadn't given, like, it was just a car. And uh, there was an auction. And those days, it was uh, during 70s, early 70s. And I think uh, it was auctioned for 310 rupees where we could get, uh, you know, three, four cows, I think, around that time, other, other breeds. Mm -hmm. And this one, the civil administrator was very close to my father and he had said, by any means, you should buy this car, a calf. And my father, I still remember, paid 310 rupees and bought this calf. 
And it was the best thing, like, you know, it used to have one, you know, bucket to milk the cow. And we needed three buckets to milk this cow when it actually, you know, <laughs> gave birth to the first of its calf. So, and that was called go-to guy. And, you know, that became part of the family for years and years. So that was my first contact with the, whatever I knew of Australia. So Australian cows, and they give so much milk. So I saw that generosity of Australia with through this cow. It's a very interesting <laughs> introduction to Australia. A very productive yeah. cow. <laughs> <laughs> and then the generosity of the cow that we saw through the milk, I think what we landed up later in our life is the generosity for allowing us to, you know, live in this country and start a new life all over again. So I always say, you know, thank you, Australia, for giving us this new life. So it sounds like you didn't have many expectations of what life was going to be like in Australia. What did you find when you got here? What was the reality of living in Australia, finding yourself in Australia for the first time? When I got the protection, I think everything else for me was a bonus. Fast forward that to even getting that citizenship. I was stateless for 13 years and I really wanted to belong, you know, belong somewhere. When I was holding that citizenship when the mayor was holding, handing me the citizenship. I was holding it so tight, it almost <laughs> tore actually, <laughs> because I wasn't sure whether you would take it back or give it to me, you know. So it was, it meant so much to me because then I knew I belonged somewhere. And then when I bought my, uh, you know, family, we bought our first property in Blacktown. We not only got a home in Blacktown, we got an identity. And that's where I am ever grateful to Australia and ever grateful to Blacktown because I got that sense of belonging and that sense of identity once again. I've got to ask you what you knew about Blacktown and what was your first impression of Blacktown when you arrived in Blacktown? I did quite a bit of research before I came to Blacktown because when I first mentioned to my friends at Telstra that I'm looking for a property in Blacktown, they said, like, they were. A little scared. Oh, what do you mean? Like, you know, <laughs> and I, there are a lot of people commenting. And I said, oh, how do you know this? And many of them even hadn't been to Blacktown, but they had a perception. So I thought, uh, why not try this for myself? So my daughter and I used to drive here many times. We just wanted to look for ourselves, what it is like. And I spoke to one woman where we later bought the property. Like, you know, she was a fairly elderly woman. And I said, you know, how do you find it here? She didn't have any problem. She said, oh, you know, I guess that's bus 274 or something. I get to the station five minutes and it's, uh, you know, we go for a walk in the evening, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then I started visiting Blacktown at different times as well. And at the station those days, back in 2004, like it could be pretty rough. Other than that, I found no reason why I could live in this place because when I was a young child, young person, I always had a desire to work for the United Nations and the desire to know people and, you know, visit different people, learn about different cultures and things. And I thought, this is United Nations, you know, people from 180 or so different countries speaking almost that number of languages. How rich could that be? And I wanted to learn from, you know, meet Aboriginal people. And this has one of the largest, the largest urban indigenous population in the country. So I thought, this is heaven. Like, you know, I've got everything that I was looking for in life. So that was one of the reasons I think I came to Blacktown and I found very different Blacktown from the perception that I'd heard from my friends 
at Telstra and other places who had never been here. So you had the ambition to work for the United Nations. Perhaps that's yet to come, but you did find yourself working for an association called the Association of Bhutanese in Australia. What was your role in that? Actually, when I got this call from the immigration department and said, hey, Om, can we have a chat? And I went to have a chat. And one of the best news I ever got was, hey, we are resettling people from the refugee camp. I said, well, I couldn't, even today I have that, you know, excitement when I recall those words. And immediately after that, we said, we need to do something about this now. Like we're just four Bhutanese family in Sydney. We needed to sort of look after, like, you know, help them settle in the country. So we said the first thing is to maybe have an identity as an as a community. So we set up this association of Bhutanese in Australia with four families together. So I was the founding president of the organization and we started working very closely with the Department of Immigration and the settlement service providers uh, to see how we can work closely with them in partnership so that we can also be part of that settlement process, helping people to settle in the country. One statement that comes out of this book is that you say every refugee arrives with at least one skill. You seem to be an advocate for what we would call independence rather than yes. dependence. I think, Greg, I go a little further than that because, like, what we have found is, like, you know, people want, if they are dependent, they want to be independent. And sometimes once they become independent, they mess up their lives. I'm independent. I don't need anybody. I've got everything. And then they're back to that loneliness because, you know, like you got a car, you got a house, you got everything. You can have a drink at the evening. You have everything. So you are independent. And then people start messing up their life. So what is really important is we are, I found that we are neither dependent nor independent. By nature, we are interdependent. If we recognize that we are interdependent, then we will be in a long journey of prosperity. Whereas if you simply stop by being independent and practice independence, uh, then you really mess up your life. So I, I really believe that we are by nature very interdependent. And if we uh, go on that continuum, I think uh, you have a much more richer life than being just independent. What you're <laughs> talking about is community. What's your idea of community? What are the elements that make it work, that make a person neither dependent nor independent, but interdependent, as you say? If I sort of describe the way I approach here, I live in a place called Fairwater. It's in Blacktown. I am a Fairwater resident first. I'm a Blacktown resident first. That's my starting point, irrespective of my religion, culture, heritage, etc., etc. So if we take that broader identity to start with, if that's a common identity that we take with, and then add the other identities on top, it adds to the richness. Whereas if we start as a, you know, Muslim leader, Christian leader, you know, like, or I'm Christian, I'm Muslim, I'm Hindu, I'm Buddhist, then we are starting on the differences. And I feel pretty scared if we nurture these narrow identities or if we empower these narrow identities or empower leaders with the narrow identities, it could lead to some bad consequences. Now, if you look at what's happening in Russia or what happened with Saddam Hussein or in our own case, like the king 
perhaps he identified himself as the king of the northern Bhutanese, not the southern Bhutanese. So we were ethnic Nepali. So he identified himself with the northern Bhutanese of Tibetan origin. So once he took that narrow identity, he had to defend his people, in bracket I should say, mm -hmm. his people at the expense of the rest. Whereas we were totally loyal subjects as well. So here as well, I think we really need to rethink our multicultural, how we define our multiculturalism and where is our starting point. So if if we want a youth you know, activity in Black Town, it need not be uh, Afghan youth or Bhutanese youth or Sudanese youth. We can all come together as one Black Town youth. And that could be a Black Town youth activity or, you know, things like that. So I think where we start, those identities are, again, you don't get me wrong, like, you know, are very important. Our language, our culture, our identities are very important. Whereas we should not be starting with those. Rather, we should be starting with what's common. Because for black town to be a black town resident, we all want our children to be running around. We want elderly people to be walking around safe, feeling very safe. You know, like we walk around at night, you know, 11 o'clock, 11.30, and we can see, uh, you know, women walking around with the phone and like, you know, a young couple walking with their children. It's, it's, that's community. And if we can build that trust amongst ourselves, and that's what we're trying to do in Fairwood actually, and I think most people, you know, many people would know each other, you know, many women, children, you know, play with each other. So if we know each other, fear goes away. Unless you say hello to the next house, they're still strangers. But once that hello starts and start talking to each other, you become a neighbor and become safer. So you don't need police to be, you know, making your neighborhood safe. It's the community which needs to, you know, come together and, you know, build that relationship and really coming back to your point. Yes, it's all about community and creating that sense of belonging to that community. And I think my family is as good as my involvement and my community is as good as my own involvement. So we really encourage people to be involved in their family if they want a good family. We really want to encourage people to be involved in the community if they want a good community. So the, the lesson is to be connected, to reach out. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's so true, Greg. <laughs> Om Dunkel, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Greg, for having me. It's such a great opportunity to share my story of, you know, flight from Bhutan to, to be able to live in this beautiful country. So thank you very much, Greg. I've been talking to Om Dunkel about his book, Bhutan to Blacktown, Losing Everything and Finding Australia. It's published by New South, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People gift card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.